This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. McDelivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the results, you'll always be winning with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app and you'll get rewards points delivered too. So that ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only via app at participating restaurants. 18 plus rewards registration required. Points only on menu items, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Welcome to episode two of Besotted Reloaded, the story of Brentford's amazing 1988-89 FA Cup run. Ex-Brentford midfielder Alan Cockrum will join myself, Billy Grant and Dave Lane to relive the memories of those amazing few months. We'll also be hearing from the thoughts of fans Gary Smith, Steve the Bordeaux Bee, Gary Scammell, Greville Water Mann, Londie, Clarkey, Joe Whelan, Monty, Paul Jamieson, Colin the South Coast Bee, and Steve Horowitz in this episode. You can catch parts one and three of this podcast on prideofwest.london and also make sure you catch up with all Besotted activity on besotted.com. Please make sure you subscribe to us on your favourite podcast platform. Thanks for listening. I'm Billy Grant and I want to say a warm, warm welcome back to Alan Cockrum and Dave Laney Lane as we reminisce a little bit more about Brentford's 1988-89 FA Cup run on Bill Sotted Reloaded. Guys, how are you doing? All oh, good, thank you, mate. Boy. All good. Good to, have, good to be back, mate. That's good. It's good to have you back as well. Some great stories, if you didn't check them out, in part one of Bill Sotted Reloaded, the 88-89 FA Cup run as well. Alan Cochran, as they say, was on fire. And I know you've got more tales than this one as well, haven't you, Alan? Yeah, as you said earlier, Bill, uh, more memories. The memories get have more clarity now because it's Billy Big Time, isn't it? That's um, right. So yeah, some stories that, um, that obviously people haven't heard before. So Alan, I mean, I know we talked about you starting at Brentford, but you haven't even told us what you're up to now. So just give us a little insight of what's going on. Left Brentford. Won't tell you. I went abroad, play abroad in Shallow. I went to Belgium. Ended up as player meant. Uh, player manager of St Albans, which was an amazing time for a young man to be a player manager at the time. Done that for about three or four years and lo and behold, was a firefighter for 12 years. So a massive changing career. And I met, Brian Basson was on my land. I was Norfolk. I was a Norfolk firefighter. And Brian Basson used to come into the, to the fire station to, to, to show his kids around. And a, a total change of career. Um, and I wanted to do something different because I'd done football all my life. 
an amazing time. It was very camaraderie, the same as football. All the lads, banter, fantastic. But obviously working for the community was, a, was an amazing thing. A step a little bit forward. Had two business, businesses in America with Gary Blissett. Toured America, worked for the Philadelphia Union as the technical specialist for two years. Fantastic. And was head coach at the Met Oval in New York, which was a feeder team into the New York, York Red, Red Bulls. Come, over, come back from America, based up in Ealing, and just the most amazing time. Was fortunate enough to be head coach at University College London, um, where we won nine trophies in three years, the most successful time at the university, and then got poached. And at this moment in time, Bill and, and Laney, I'm the head coach at Cambridge University, which is probably one of the most prestigious universities in the world. And as you guys know, from a working class background to end up mixing with some of the elite of the country, shall we say, and walking around the university and being head coach is a massive privilege from someone with no education who left school when he was 14 to be into, we say, the most educated place in the world. And then I would say my greatest, one of my greatest um, achievements is for the three years in October, to uh, have, have um, uh, been the, uh, the instigator and the, the inventor, shall we say, of, of uh, Brentford Penguins FC, which is the Down Syndrome Club for Brentford Football Club now. Um, I first went to the club with an idea three years ago and Pete Shears and um, uh, Lee Doyle gave me full backing to go ahead and do it with that name, with Brentford Penguins. And just before, unfortunately, COVID-19, I was invited to, uh, to the offices overlooking the new stadium by John Varney. And they were so impressed with what we had done. They, they put a little segment in the, um, in the new stadium that a lot of the Down syndrome kids suffer with, um, with loud noise and stuff. Uh, the, 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 the club have been fantastic. Give me all home tickets for the, for the new road back, back in the old stadium, which was amazing. Um, and I can't tell you how much an effect it's had on the children's lives. Um, yeah, it's, 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 it's fantastic. And for the back end of the club now to appreciate what I've done and really want to come in into it. The kids have been banner wavers, mascots, but really they put their name to it now and said, yeah, we love this. We want to, want to get involved is, is a real tribute to all the, all the parents and the, and the kids that have been there for three years. So it's probably one of my proudest moments, along with Anfield, obviously. What an amazing 30 plus years. You've done some great things. You've really, really raised the bar. And Cambridge University, mate, that's where it all started for the 99 promotion season as well. But we'll talk about that on another Reloaded podcast. But let's cast our minds back now to 88-89, the cup run. So, like I said, we're in the big time. Fourth round of the FA Cup. Manchester City, venue, Griffin Park. The date, Saturday, the 28th of January, 1989. The crowd, 12,100 crammed into Griffin Park. Just giving you a little bit of details on Manchester City, just to give you a vibe as to where they were at. They were actually in League Division 2, but they were flying high. They were third in Division 2 when we played them when they came down to Griffin Park. They were actually equal on points with second place Watford, that was 47 points, and one point behind leaders Chelsea. That season they actually finished second behind Chelsea 
and one place ahead of Palace. They actually won a two-legged playoff final against Blackburn to put them back up into the top division. They had players like Andy Dibble, Brian Gale, Andy Hinchcliffe, Steve Redmond, Neil McNabb. But Imri Veradi is actually absent for that game, as was a young Jason Beckford. Before they played us, they won four and drew one of their last five matches. They'd beaten Swindon, Leicester, Oldham and Hull, and they'd drawn to Leeds. Just looking at Manchester City coming to Griffin Park, you realise now, I mean, they weren't in the top league, but they were properly hardcore. They're a big team. That just shows you how difficult a match that was, doesn't it, Alan? I think, I think it's probably one of the greatest victories down, down the park. Because quite correctly, you said about Man City were at the time, but you've got to remember historically how big a club that is. I mean, we're looking at it now, but let's be prior to that. If you take their history throughout, an absolutely massive club, and let's be honest, a massive budget. And they had, like I said, they had a big budget. I mean, they had some big name players in there as well. Do you, what do you remember? I mean, obviously, when the draw came out, what was the buzz? What were the players saying? What was Perriman saying? What were you... What was going around at Griffin Park? Because I'd love to be the fly on the wall. Squeaky. It starts to get squeaky bum time, as Mr. Ferguson would say. It's, everything becomes real. Prior to this, uh, there's not too many mem memories from supporters and players. There's just goals that are remembered and the fact that you've just progressed through the rounds. But now you're realising that we're going to get 10, 12,000 people crammed in the park. And this is our opportunity as a club and as individuals to, to have a go in the FA Cup, which is a boyhood dream, isn't it? Of course, dreams to be made of. And as well, I mean, Laney, as fans as well, I mean, I remember just, like I said to you, getting to the third round is always a big thing for the fans. We got through the third round and we got to the fourth round. I mean, I remember my mind was absolutely blown when Manchester City came out of the hat for that, uh, for that draw. I mean, what, what was the feeling like for you? Well, it's the whole magnitude. The whole magnitude gets it gets sort of elevated again and again and again, and and the press start to to kind of sniff around more than they did before. You know, um, you get like column inches all over the place. The radio interviews would have started, so the, I'm, I'm sure the players would have noticed the press down the training ground um, that they wouldn't have been there for the previous round. So it all becomes a lot more serious. The circus are in town. The FA Cup. Uh, it, it, it comes into its own then where giant killing, um, you know, gets talked about. And, you know, Brentford, they'd seen, uh, were up for this. Uh, they, 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 they'd been able to get through replays. They, they were scrapping. They were, you know, they had all the ingredients for a, a proper cup upset. Uh, and as you say, you know, obviously Man City aren't the Man City of today where they're kind of a world-class team, but they are a quality, quality outfit. And it shows you, you know, we're, we're you know, in a, in a similar position to where they were in, in, that, in, that, in that second tier. You know, so it shows you where, you know, what's possible from as, as using the second tier as a springboard. But with, with the cup run now, I think Man City down at Griffin Park, it, it, it was something really special. And I, and I do remember it kind of becomes all-encapsulating, all-encompassing. All and I don't think, as Brentford fans, we would have been talking about anything else. But we, you have to remember, this is pre-internet, pre-mobile days. So 
you know, the the games would have been like, you know, in the pubs before we would have been talking about nothing else, but there was no internet to be kind of like, or WhatsApp or Twitter. So, you know, it, it, it was very much old school excitement. It was as well, because, you know, the thing that we do is that we'd meet the, the game before and we'd talk about it. We'd make our plans the day before. And then to meet up, we'd actually have to physically ring on a landline and keep your fingers crossed that somebody's actually going to be there or leave a message on his or her answer machine. So the sort of mobilisation of getting everybody together for games like this was actually kind of quite, quite tough. You had to be properly on it. And I mean, for me, I mean, I spent a lot of time. It was my, it was my first year at, at work. I was working at um, 3T, British Telecom. I remember the guy that sat opposite me just said to me, he goes, you know, I mean, I had a pretty decent job. I went straight in as a level two or level one, or can't remember what it was, you know, sort of management role straight in. So I was going to be there sort of kind of doing proper stuff. And I was a computer programmer at the time. So I was going to be coding and building all these fantastic systems for BT. But the guy opposite me, probably after six months, he goes, you just spend your whole time planning Brentford trips. You know what I'm saying? He's like, you, you, know, you went to the Lake District last week and you, you were going off to here and, oh, you've got a big cup match next week. And that's what you did. You, you're on the phone just ringing everybody, trying to sort out what's happening on Saturday. And don't forget, this is the era of club call, uh, which was like a Brentford football club premium phone line, which Peter Gillam used to kind of, every day, the Brentford news would appear on club call and you would ring up the number and pay probably 500 quid for the call. I mean, it was extortionate. I mean, but that's, that's just the way it was, but there was no, there was no alternative source of information. You're thinking like the Sotted didn't start until um, a year later. There was voice of the beehive, which was the first Brentford fanzine that, that was going, but he, he was very, he wasn't newsy. It was very, very kind of, comicky very busy so um yeah so if you wanted any news you had to ring up club call and pay literally pay through the nose for it it's true actually. in fact it's probably people still paying off phone bills they racked up back then that's right and uh, have you got to talk we've got to give a shout out to rob rob bartram as well from voice of the beehive as well because I, I as you know before I, I started off with you and writing stuff for besotted laney i was actually writing a lot of stuff for uh, for rob for voice of the beehive and i remember i used to drive to his house in stoke newington that's how you used to get it none of this internet stuff i used to sort of write it or type it and then i'd drive to his house in stoke newington and i'd knock on his door and i'd give him this like scrappy piece of paper and i think he sort of stapled it together with all the other scrappy pieces of paper that he'd have get down the printer and put it out it was a great great fancy so those are the days just giving you a bit more reminisce about what it was all about and like i said to you there was a lot of buzz around um, what was happening at the time but just coming back to the confidence of the players because obviously we are through to the third round it had been quite tough Brentford were quite a good side at that stage as well there was a lot of confidence in the side and with the players interestingly we should live a little listen to Richard Goodet and Tony Parks because they're talking about that cup run with a little bit of fondness I mean when we went there I like I turned up and I was like we're going to beat them full stop I was playing against Brian Gale ex-Wimbledon whatever and I knew he could not control me he couldn't control me I knew that because I played against Steve Redman the year before when I was at South End and I knew they weren't good enough and I said we beat them and I, I, I remember saying to Bliss no word of a lie I said to Bliss Bliss if I get the ball on the edge of the box get in the, get in the six yard box because I put the ball in your score and like boom and he scored I think Bliss scored did he score two or one was it two? Yeah. And one of them was like, he literally put it yeah. from a six-yard box. So, Bliss, if I get the ball, 
get in the box, I'll put it across, you'll score. And that was it. We, we, I, know, I know this might, like, but we were a better team than Man City. We were a better team. We had better players. We had better players playing in our team than Man City did. What, 3-1 was we beat them? 3-1? We had better players. We had better, like, our forwards were better than their forwards. Our defence was better than their defence. And our, we had better players than they did. And that was it. That's why we beat them. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, listen, I think, um, I think most people remember a fantastic cup run that we had up to the, we got beat by Liverpool in the quarterfinals. But, we, 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 we kind of collected a few scalps along the way, you know, and I, I think probably at the time we, we, we had a really good win at Ewood Park and um, that, that, that one stands out. And, we, we, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't one of them games where we were getting trounced and we were lucky to with a breakaway. We thoroughly deserved the win on that day. And uh, right, the way, right the way through that cup run, the games that we won to get to the, to the Anfield game was, um, you know, we thoroughly deserved that day out at, uh, at Anfield. And it was a good cup run for us and it, and it kind of brought the club to, to a bit of prominence, if you like, living in the shadows of uh, some of the bigger clubs around London. So Richard Cadet, very, very confident. He, he keeps going into these matches just saying we're going to beat them. He's gone into the Man City game. And he's, he's, it's almost like there's no quibbles with Richard. He's just like, bang, we're going to beat them. Were you as confident as what Richard was there? Dick, Dickie was Mr. Confidence. Um, terrible dresser, but he still thought his clobber was great. But it weren't. That's a sign of confidence, isn't it? To stroll into training ground with minging gear on and still think you're the top man. But he was reflective of the way we all felt. And also it come from from the top man, Steve. Steve was an abundance of, of confidence. And also there were fantastic links to the Man City game because you had the, the whole Spurs thing with Steve winning the FA Cup against them over two, uh, over two games in the early 80s. Um, and obviously Bliss, uh, the resident Mank. So there was little connections coming up. And when you get those connections in football, you tend to think, hang on a minute, this is going to go our way. And we didn't have any fear, Bill. That was the thing as a squad, as a, as a player. And I think it's an age thing as well. It, we weren't young and dumb and we weren't old and rough. We were in the middle of our careers and you just sort of was building into that self-confidence on and off the pitch, if that makes sense. Harking back to those days, now you just reminded me, I was actually at Wembley, at Wembley when Tottenham beat Man City 3-2. And uh, it was absolutely mad. And that's when Ricky Villa scored that amazing goal. I mean, I was there. And, and the reason why I say that is because you're talking about replays. Replays used to happen a few days afterwards. So the main finals on the Saturday, you couldn't get a ticket for gold dust, even though in those days I, I knew I had to bunk into Wembley. So I used to go to all the cup finals. But I didn't go to that one. But then getting the ticket for the replay is really easy because all the Man Mancunians couldn't afford to come down again on the Tuesday night. And also, no, but they couldn't because it's like four days afterwards. And the locals as well, you know, some were good. So it's actually really easy to get a ticket. So I went to that game, I remember. And I, when Ricky Villa scored the goal because I was in the Tottenham in, I got hugged by all these Tottenham fans. Like, you know what I'm saying? It's like hugging me going, oh, yes, we've done it. It was really quite strange. And I sort of had to pretend because they were looking quite mean. I was sort of like, yes, I'm very happy, actually. I'm just here to watch the game. But yeah, you, you, were, but you were at that game as well, weren't you? I was, yeah, I was at the club and all the young lads were sitting. Do you remember the leather seats where the benches were? 
if the, if you look at the video it's eight deep we're all at the back we were all sitting at the back on the leather seats where the you know what you would call the dugout now although they didn't have dugouts there so yeah we were sitting there for that game and obviously when you're being hugged by tottenham fans bill you you, you haven't washed yourself since mate have you let's be honest <laughs> listen we won't go into that one but look going back to this game i'm going to you know i've got my memories laney's got his memories you've got your memories but let's have a little listen to what the fans thought about the man city game and the little kind of vibes as we get into that game because it was very very exciting in the rain at griffin park it was a fabulous wet january ripe for an upset i remember the the pitch was well boggy city didn't fancy it whatsoever and we were ready for an upset against City. City really didn't like it. We, we were up for it. We sensed blood. And 3-1, I remember really well, was no fluke. We really played well on the day. Always used to meet Mandy and Alison at, well, the Red Lion or McDonald's, whatever you'd like to call it, but it's the Red Lion. And we'd just go in the brickies for a drink, meet up with everybody, your, you know, your blondies, your John Marion, all that lot. And as I say, you would go in and the bar would be empty because even in cold and rain, everyone just stood outside because that was the pub. If the rival fans came and there was going to be a bit of banter, that would be what would happen. Can't remember much about the game because obviously having a few pints, but I do know that we won and everyone went absolutely mental. Yeah, I remember the, the build-up for the Manchester City game, which is like the, the fourth round, uh, there's quite a lot of excitement really all round because it's the biggest game uh, Brentford had had for a number of years against, uh, you know, a big team like Manchester City. It's the first time they'd come to Griffin Park in my lifetime. They had a lot of big name players, but again, they was head and shoulders above Brentford. The build-up really in the pubs, everyone was around. The whole, the whole place was sort of buzzing. I see all the Man City fans turning up with their inflatables and stuff. Uh, obviously, they hadn't been to Brentford before, so it was a good day out for them coming down to London and visiting Brentford. You know, we sort of probably met up then in, I think we were drinking regularly in the in the beehive, I think we were. Uh, it was me, Ian, uh, Richard, Merritt, uh, Ginge. Uh, Colin, usual guys, uh, and they still all go now. Going into the game, it was a big crowd. Uh, was it just over 12,000? But that was obviously when it was all uh, still terracing in New Road. So I think I was prob we was probably in the paddock, standing in the paddock, up towards the, the away end, where, um, which was the opening then. And, you know, it was pretty rammed, but the atmosphere felt like a lot more than 12,000 people. It's like, it was one of the last big games with like terracing pretty much on uh, all four sides of the ground. So yeah, it, it was a good atmosphere and the atmosphere just sort of heightened as the game went on, especially when we got the third goal. Uh, what I can remember, it was like a real boggy, muddy pitch. I think it obviously suited Brentford more. Um, we had a team that could sort of handle themselves in in those sort of circumstances and on that sort of condition of pitch but yeah no it was great especially when you know we got that winner it was like fantastic and you know there's that famous picture of Blissett celebrating that third goal and you know that is a picture that just sums up that whole game. If you ask me about the Man City game what do I remember about it? Obviously, I remember the, the, the Blissett scoring the goals, and I think it was Keith Jones, I think, scored another one. Um, I can't remember if that was correct or not, but uh, I remember where it was in the ground. 
my favourite spot was over where the dugouts are, because um, any big game I like to jump on top of the dugout and go mad, and um, mainly probably to get in the pictures, I don't know, but um, that used to be my favourite thing, to jump up and about on the top of the dugout and, um, and celebrate um, when we scored in big games. Um, so I remember that, um, that, that's what I remember about the Man City game, and obviously the victory, um, absolutely brilliant, absolutely brilliant. So I was with my mate in Cairo, and you know we were on the piss basically most of the time. But I woke him up on the Saturday of the Man City game about six a.m. Gave him a kick and said, "Let's go and climb the pyramid." So we got a taxi out to Giza. We managed to go up the pyramid. You can't climb up the pyramid in the middle. You have to climb up the sides on the angle. So you go from side to side. You know what I mean? Like building blocks. When we got to the top, we had a I somehow had a bottle of uh, red wine uh, and a chillum, because those were the days. Um, and then I could never do it now. We, we came down and I said to him, I said, listen, I have got a hundred quid at home. What we could do is we could try and get a flight now, because it was like 8, 8.30, and, you know, go to the airport. We'd go to London and you know, I could just pop off, go and watch Brentford play and fancy that. So somehow we did that. And um, we got on a flight within the next, I don't know, we arrived at Heathrow at about half past one. My sister's ex-boyfriend picked us up. He took us all the way down past West Middlesex Hospital to the traffic lights there. And there was so much traffic, you know what I mean? So we just kind of legged it from there. My, my mate, who was a Kiwi, was getting pissed off because it was raining and there were police horses. So I said, yeah, here's a quid. Go to that bus stop, get a 65, get on the bus, go to Richmond, Richmond, get off opposite Richmond Station, get to the Sun Pub, and I'll see you after the game, I've got to get in. So I went up to the gates and I told them that I climbed a pyramid to, to watch this game, and they still wouldn't let me in, you know what I mean? They just, as if, I mean, I looked like a hippie. So naughty, naughty, uh, walked around the ground a couple of times, uh, went through a back garden, jumped on a bin, and I was kind of pretty much landed in the loo. And then there was a roar, and Brentford were 2-0 up. They said, what? You know, one, I got in, and two, we were 2 them up. And then I think, I can't remember the City midfield. He brought it back to 2-1. Um, and then we scrambled in the third and we won 3-1. Wow. Great hearing those memories from the fans there from the day. Just harking you guys back again. So, listen, you must, you must have, it must be flowing back now. You must have some memories from, you know, building up to that match on the day, on the pitch. I mean, Alan, come on. It, uh, do you know what I remember? It's funny that you get that click moment from training. And I remember leading up to the games, sort of Thursday, Friday, that he was saying about working hard. You hear it all the time now about um, outworking the opposition. And Steve said it, you've got the energy. We were a fit team. You've got the energy to work them. So we need to play the game at a high tempo. Um, and thinking back to the first 20 minutes, I won't go into the game too much detail yet, but the first 20 minutes was we worked really, really hard. Um, and that kind of established us within the game. So we worked on a high press in training, um, which today is a normal thing that you hear coaches talk about. But it was quite revolutionary for him to talk about stuff like that, encourage them to play at the back. And then you press them really quickly. So looking back at footage, it, it, it kind of worked, if anyone remembers. It, it did, because we came out the traps pretty quickly as well. I mean, we scored after, you know, after 10 minutes, you know. So um, muddy pitch, we, we really outplayed them, you know. Um, cadets get the ball across to Blissett, bang, in the back of the net. And the whole place erupted. I remember there's not the Ealing Road, or the Ealing Road, we're on the new road as well. It erupted. And, and I remember, like I said to you, I came down there, the excitement was so much. In the morning, I remember the morning, I 
I don't think I slept that night. And then I, I, I got up and I came out and I was actually living with my, um, my flatmate who I'd met in, I'd actually met my flatmate in, uh, in Boston when I lived in Boston, I lived in Boston about a year, year and a bit beforehand. And, uh, all the English people that were living there, they came together and uh, she became a really good mate of mine. You know, she ended up living with me in Boston. Then she started to live with me in, in Acton in West London. And she'd never been to a football match. And so for me, I remember I said to her, look, you've got to come. I was so excited. I actually managed to convince my flatmate who lived down the, dad lived down the King's Road, who owned an art gallery. She was very, you know, upper middle class, but a lovely girl. And she's come down to the new inn at sort of like 10 o'clock in the morning with all these drunken people having a right old laugh, you know, and I'm like, this is my world. I know you've seen my music world and my other world, but this is my world. And she, I think she's a little bit sort of slightly rabbit in the headlights, but in the end she embraced it and she thought it was really great. And it's interesting because I think it's the only football match she's ever been to. It was wet, it was rainy. She's turned up, she's met all these nutty people who are going mad. Then we've gone to the match, crammed ourselves into the new road. She's seen absolute mayhem take place and uh, she's witnessed it and she's gone away and she's probably written about it and never gone back to another football match again but for me that's great so uh, for me i am i normally drove or i i had my, my first beetle at the time i used to come on my moped and then then i got a car so i had a, and a volkswagen beetle and for this game um i wanted a drink so um I've managed to get my dad to come and he, he didn't, doesn't, he didn't, he still doesn't come very often. He does, he does come to the bigger games. Um, it's only because I only invite him to the bigger games really. Um, and uh, he's normally a bit of a jinx if I'm honest with you, but this match he came and obviously we, I think we, we, we stood in the, uh, in the new road um, and we were just, I remember we were drenched. We, we walked from, uh, we walked from sort of the other side of the Great West Road and we got in and we were just properly soggy. So uh, there was like steam coming off of people in, in the in the new road. But I think it was just like there were, you could smell something going on. You know, there was some there was an atmosphere. And, you know, as soon as the players come out, you could you could sense that the whole ground was up for it. And there was people standing, you know, uh, on the dugouts in the in the in the sort of in the Braemar Road during the game when the goals had taken place. Um, it was it was a proper intimidating atmosphere, and uh, the the players were properly up for it. And I, and I think, um, so hopefully, we're going to hear now. Man City just didn't know what was going to hit them. You know, the other player you missed out as well was because I was marking him, Gary Megson, uh, the tall ginger fella. Um, and no disrespect to gingers, but they were easier to mark because you could see him see him a mile away, so you could never lose him. But he was a runner and he had that, that sort of tough ruggedness about him. I remember Steve saying to us that the game's going to be won and lost in that middle ground. A bit like a war. You know, when a war's, war wars is played out in middle ground. And all I remember from the day, A, abysmal, not in, not in true northern abysmal, where it's windy and raining, but just constant rain. And realistically, if you look at the freaking pitch, sanded, wet, and I was a bit of a rebel and I used to just wear Copa Mundials most games. And now I even had to put studs in. So even I was wearing studs on there to get up and down the pitch. And a very, very, one of the toughest physical games I think we played as a team or I played as an individual. It was absolute graft. 
because you're playing against a team that suspectedly have better footballers. But by the same token, we was given the um, given the remit of closing down, giving them no space. Um, and I think that's what won us the game was our, we outworked them. We outworked them. And then the bit of quality that we had in the last third come off for us very early as well, which was a really good sign. I've got to bring you the memories that I have from the terraces. Like I said, you, I used to love going on the new road terraces those days. I'd, um, that year, the year before, I think it was, uh, on my very first day at work, I, I, my first day at work, and it's interesting, every time I go down to Cardiff and I come out the station, I look opposite there, there's a building on Queen Street where I used to, it's the first place I ever worked at British Telecom, BT, and that's where they used to train you. And after I came back off, uh, off the first training course for a week, I came back on the train, went, got a, like a six o'clock in the morning train, came into London, went to King's Cross Station, and I basically bought a ticket to go up to Sunderland because Brentford were playing Sunderland. Like, you know, this is like late 80s. And I'd met on the platform Jo, who, uh, who's chatting on this as well. She's giving her thoughts. And Jo, she's the girl that took me to football. If you listen to or the Push Up Brentford documentary, she took me to my first ever Brentford game. Uh, got me bunked over the turnstiles. And so I met her there and she introduced me to these two lads I've never seen before, which is uh, people now know him as Lulu, Bill Lambert or Lambrisco and Steve Bones as well. And after that, and um, that was 1988, I think it was, 87 or 88, we became good mates. So we started to go to football quite a lot. We started to drink in the, in the new inn. We started to get, you know, friendly with the guys in the new inn who'd let us in early. We get the knock in, the knock on the window stuff and all that lot. So I think there was a plenty of knocking on the window and we got into the new inn very early then. And uh, there was also a little bit of bizarreness about how we kind of watched our football then as well, which is great. And uh, we always sort of came up with these really sort of like left field sort of kind of really sort of kind of sort of mad sort of traditions. And I think we decided in the FA Cup that if Brentford won, then we were going to go up market and we're going to start drinking wine. So I think I've seen these photographs of us on the New Road Terrace. Obviously, we like two, we have a two, two nil up or we're three one up. And we've got photographs of us, me, Lambriscoes of Lulu, Steve Foster, Ian Foster. I think my, um, my girlfriend at the time, her, her, her brother-in-law, Cliff. And we're all standing on the terraces with these cans of wine and cigars. <laughs> and, we, <laughs> and that was it. We just said, if we, for our cut run, we have to bring wine and cigars. And that's how we're going to celebrate winning. So basically, all the way for the cut run, it was cans of wine and cigars. I would, do you know what? You've just spring-loaded a memory there. Me and Jonesy, my best mate there, we used to call it the four-fingered salute, right? And you talk about the wine and the cigar. We used to have the four-fingered salute with the brandy glass. So we used to have a large brandy with two fingers and the two-finger cigar. So when, when you're in the players' lounge after the games, the big games and that, me and Jonesy used to have the four-fingered salute. So there you was, mate, on the terraces with your uh, tinny wine and your uh, probably, what is it, a cheroot or something, a Clint Eastwood special. <laughs> and, then, and then me and Jonesy with our player, player and, um, and Remy Martin. You spring-loaded another memory from me because I didn't go into the players' bar after the game very often, but when I, I, I did a few times, it probably was with you, Bill, and uh, I remember Gary Blisket, Gary Blisket poncing fags off me. I, I do remember that. He owes me. I, I was drinking, um, smoking Marlboro Light at the time, and he, he used to. He obviously used to be on his Regals or whatever he was on, and uh, he, 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 he saw a quality cigarette and he wanted one, and he was he was always nabbing them off of me. 
But I, I also remember as well, as I said, I was at the newspaper. There was a big drinking culture at lunchtimes at the time. And we used to go out. And the blokes I used to work with, um, they were all pr big, like top flight fans. Um, Tottenham and Arsenal and West Ham or whatever. And um, Ian Shreves was the guy that um, I sat next to. And his, his, his uncle was Peter Shreves, who was at Spurs. So he, he, was a big, he was a big Spurs fan. And then Archie, John Argarides, who sat another one opposite me, they were, they were Spurs as well. So they were all day, all night, just always on about Spurs this, Spurs that. And they didn't give a monkeys about Brentford, of course. So they, they knew I went and then, you know, who you got Saturday? Oh, Berry. Then we got Macclesfield, Peterborough, whatever. And it was like, oh, they, they were talking about their games. And, but all of a sudden, they were interested in Brentford because we had, we'd progressed and we were, you know, making headlines and they were aware of us. So it was around that time that they actually started to talk to me about football, which was a bit of a novel thing. So let's have a little listen to more fan tales from the terraces. Manchester City, although only being in the, the second tier at the time, um, seems ironic now with, with where they are and winning league titles left, right and centre. Um, was still a big draw, still a big team to come down to Griffin Park. Uh, and I remember speaking to my friend Keith on the phone that night and talking about how we were going to get our tickets and which part of the ground did we want to go in, but we decided not to change our, our routine of where we watched the game. So we were in the New Road um, watching it there. I think this was before the New Road was, was a seated stand. So we were packed into the New Road nice and tightly on the day. Did the same thing as we always did. I'm a, I'm a stickler for tradition of doing the same thing, getting to the ground round about the same time, always trying to get to the same place. Obviously, when I had a season ticket, that was fine. You could sit in the same seat all the time. Um, it was an awful day. I seem to remember the rain was sort of torrenting down for the duration of the day, not just for the 90 minutes itself. But uh, Brentford really sort of adapted to the conditions far better than Manchester City, who... I think we're under the impression that they just had to turn up and get just turn up to, to get some sort of result and at least take the game back to, to Main Road as it was then. But but fair uh, fair play to the bees with Blissett getting two of the goals. Keith Jones, I think Manchester City just just couldn't cope with the the way Brentford were playing, the way the fans were getting behind them. And I think from when Brentford got the first goal, the fans in the ground could sense that there was the potential of a big big scalp. As I say, although City weren't in the top flight. Everybody in Griffin Park, aside from the, the Manchester City fans, could sense that there was a possibility of an upset on the cards. Uh, and that was how it turned out to be. And then suddenly, the bees are into round five. So the build-up to the Man City game, obviously you can imagine there was a lot of demand for tickets. And uh, I can remember the old club call getting the bashing every day at work when I was working in the Brentford area. So every day I was on the phone at work trying to get tickets organised and ringing up and finding out the details. And remember queuing up for, for tickets. Um, I think it was after one of the home games, I can't remember for sure. Got in the bricklayer's arm, must have been about half past 12 that day, and it was packed even then. All the locals and regulars in there um, just meet up, and just the day, the build-up of the day was in the morning from that day to the, to the actual kick-off. Just, uh, everything seems to be up for, for a good result, a good day for Brentford. And I always remember it being a very wet and soggy day, the pitch being like a mud bath. And on the day, I thought we played really well, uh, deserved the win. Brilliant, brilliant goal by Keith Jones when he reacted to a sort of a, a miss kick and he just that that when that goal went in it just there's a mayhem and I used to stand in the paddock the brain mob paddock because it was before the seeds were installed and 
everywhere even everywhere you looked, so bodies were flying everywhere as the goals were going in and everybody jumping on each other. So, yeah, just just ecstatic. Just one of those days, you, you're so pleased you've beaten a, a top team um, and gave you the thrill to think, well, it's our day again. We're going to go further in this cup run. Can't believe it. Well, Man City was fairly uneventful for me. Unfortunately, I was, I was working that morning up, up Wembley Way and, uh, and then I had to go to some sort of like quick fit place in Norfolk, which took forever. And uh, so it was a real hurried dash to get to the ground, even in time for kickoff. I think we, we were all standing in a new road at that point, for some reason. And uh, when I got to a new road, it was absolutely rammed. And I, I didn't, it was really crowded and just about got in, let alone find anyone. So it was a bit uneventful on the socials, that one for me. But uh, I remember, you know, we played really well, I think, on that one. 3-1 you know, didn't flatter us. That was that was pretty good. Man City fans were great with their inflatable bananas, I believe. Yeah, it's a good day. You know, it's a big match. I didn't want to miss it. And then it then it all got a bit, uh, you know, quite quite important after that. Onto Blackburn. I remember the day. It was pouring, pouring rain. Um, there was inflatable inflatable bananas from the Man City end everywhere. And I remember in those days, Brentford home section were either on the new road, Braemar or the Brook Road. And I remember it being packed to the rafters, just over 12,000. And I remember turning up there, the queues were massive, but getting into the ground, unbelievable to see us take the lead against a team that I never thought we were going to beat. And uh, we went 1-0 up, 2-0 up. And then I remember they, they scored to make it 2-1 to set up a little bit of a tense um, last half an hour, 40 minutes. And then Bliss as he did in those days. Sheer bliss. It was uh, fantastic to see him put the ball in the net at the Union Road end to celebrate in front of his hometown heroes because I think he was a City fan as well. And lovely to see that winning 3-1. Um, everybody was so jubilant. Everybody's beeping their horns on the Great Rest Road on the way, on the way back to the Globe um, in those days. And um, everybody was just high-fiving everybody and waiting and waiting for the cup draw. The atmosphere in the ground was absolutely amazing. You know, we, we've never had a team like Man City come to little old Griffin Park but in those days. But when you've got a full house, it, it was even better. It was just unreal that we had won 3-1. And I think we just drunk most of the night. I can remember doing a pub crawl. Mandy had to go home. She had an 18th to go to because obviously she was a lot younger than me. And we would have gone into Stripes Bar afterwards. We were around the Beehive, the Brewery Tap, Mad Pie and Crown. And it was just really good round Brentford that night. We'd beat Man City 3-1. So 3-1, Man City had been smashed. I mean, again, I remember behind that goal because uh, the Man City fans were in the, they were in the Ealing Road end. It was the open end as well. So they got the full, the full wrath of the rainfall as well. And like I said to you, I mean, a lot of fans have talked about it. They all turned up with their inflatables. Their inflatable bananas was the main thing that they turned up with. They were the start of the inflatable craze. A lot of people can't remember the reason why the inflatable craze started. But actually, and it is quite stupid and quite childish, the reason why, it was because they had a player called Imre Viradi. And so they called him Imre Banana. And then they all start turning up at matches with bananas, inflatable bananas. And that literally is the reason why it started. And everyone's thinking, what's that all about? But before you know it, you used to turn up on the terraces and, you know, Man City fans would have like, you know, sort of kind of 5,000, 6,000 bananas on the terraces, like every, every away game. 
And then after that, like other people have said, you know, Grimsby start to get fish, you know, other teams start to turn up. I mean, we were quite big on the inflatable thing then. I sort of popped down to some sort of kind of cash and carry and I used to sort of stock up. And we had sort of pink panthers and sort of, you know, guitars and the islands and all sorts of stuff. So we, we all turned up with uh, the inflatables in those days. It was quite bizarre, but it was actually quite good fun. Sounds a bit dodgy, really. <laughs> yeah, it was probably a little bit dodgy. But like I said, you know, post-match, it was almost like euphoria. All the fans are talking about the noise. They've never felt, you know, Griffin Park erupt so much on that final whistle. You know, for me, again, and we've, I've said this so many times before, I've supported Brentford for 10 years. And in that time, we hadn't really done anything. We were the nearly team. We kind of done all right in the league, but not good enough even to really threaten promotion because there were no playoffs. You know, the playoffs had started the year before that, I think it was. But there were no playoffs, as, you know, if you finish seventh or, you know, or seventh, which means that you could flip into sixth. No, you had to be third to actually go up. The closest we got to was the Leyland Daff Trophy final at Wembley, which we lost in 1985. So for me, this was the first time that we'd actually done anything. And it was a massively euphoric moment. Yeah, you're right. It was the first time I'd, I'd actually tasted proper victory, I, I think, uh, a scalp um, as a Brentford fan. I'd started in 77, 78, and there'd been obviously really good wins and there'd been memorable games. We'd been on the telly before. Uh, there was the, you know, the Freight Rover Cup run, but this was the first time we had a big game. And I think the reason why is that we did beat Swansea, who were a, a, a top-flight side. They're a massive side. They were bigger than Man City in the early 80s, but it was an away game. And, and I was too young. I was, I've done a where I was at the time, and I couldn't go to that. So it's not quite the same. It was a John, John Toshak Swansea team that was, was in the top flight. And, you know, but they were, they were the equivalent of a kind of, you know, you know a Bournemouth in, in the top flight. Yeah, they were in the top flight. But they weren't a big, you know, they weren't a, you know, they weren't a big club. They were, they were there, but, you know, it was still an impressive victory. But, you know, it, it wasn't Liverpool and it wasn't Tottenham and it wasn't Arsenal. It was, you know, yeah, so it wasn't quite as special. And it wasn't Man City. I mean, Alan, final whistle. Tell us, what was the feeling? Well, I'd like to say this as well, because you guys are, are obviously passionate and committed to what you do. But I just want to say this. As a player, it was it was a game where the supporters and the players almost marinated. When you get 12,000, I'll get shivers now. I, I, it evokes shivers in me sometimes, but you really felt the vibe of, the, of, the, of Griffin Park that then kind of ghosts onto the pitch to the players. And that's what really, if you look at big games and where you need victory, and as I said to you, a very physically demanding game on players, because of the condition of the pitch and the emotion of the game. It was, it's really, uh, for you guys, we all become one. Not, in, not, not trying to get too Zen Buddhist about it, but it's really when you become one. And I don't, and sometimes I don't think the supporters really, really are, are credited from the players because players don't look at it in this way till they get older. That, that, that how much, certainly another 10%, and 10% physically, in those type of games is, is a winning combination. There's no doubt about that. And, and, and equally, I have to say, you know, as fans, we, we obviously we can never appreciate the, like, the physicality of a victory like that. You know, we're, we've been in the pub and we're, we're, we're vibing on, you know, the songs and the, and, you know, and the, the adrenaline from, from a very different angle. You're 
very sober, you're very well trained, you're very focused on what you're doing. And, you know, to, you say you come out of, you know, the first 10 minutes have been really hard. You've really pushed them. You talk about the pitch, you, you're wearing studs where, you know, longer studs than you normally would. That's going to zap your legs. We're, we're not, we're not aware of that and the pain you go through and that, and that pushing yourself through the pain barrier to, to achieve something that, you know, on, on paper, you shouldn't be winning, but on grass you are. So, you know, it, it's, a, it's an appreciation of both. And I think it's on occasions like that, as you say, you marinate, you all come together and, you know, it's that extra ingredient from the terraces that gives you that extra bit of, that extra 10% in your legs. And what you're saying is 100% right. And hopefully all these micro details that we can get across through these podcasts up and down the land will help everyone. You know, back in the day, you, you would never... I mean, I was speaking to my mate Ted the other day on the podcast, Tottenham Nut, and he, he was saying that the, the benefits of nowadays is he can literally see Harry Kane Twitter and know what he's training and what food he's eating and stuff like that. There, there's a there was a connect between players and fans off the field, but a disconnect as in the social media side of it. And things like this now, all those micro details that we can all put together are so helpful, uh, not only to the players, but definitely to the fans when you're realising you could ask, what are the studs that he's wearing today? And how's that going to affect him in the last 10 minutes? Because it's all those little details that we, that we strive for in life, because it's the little details that make you successful. And also after the game, I mean, you're talking about the players' bar. I mean, was, we eventually made our way up to the players' bars. We always did. I think we probably went to the new inn and then eventually round up to the players' bar. We probably saw you lot up there, probably giving it absolute large for a bit. But then but you didn't You didn't end up in the players' bar all night, did you? You sort of slunk off somewhere else, didn't you, Alan? Mate, we had our little vibe going on. We had a, we, we knew what bar was open. So we, we caned it at, at, at the club because it was a freebie. So we all went to the players' lounge where all your family was, etc. Special guests, I'll have a chat with them, keep them happy. And then we used to go with Bowles' missus into the sponsors' lounge. Because Bowles' miss and Bowles' wife run, run the um, sponsors' lounge. And you'd all go down there where it was open later. And then after, <laughs> after the sponsors, she said, come on, lads, you've got to get out of here now. And as she would close it down, she'd be shoveling all the free booze in our, in our, um, in our bags, in our kit bags. So we would go back to my gap because I lived in Pope's Lane opposite Gunnersbury Park. All the lads had come back to mine. We'd have the freebies there. And then it was boom, up to, um, up to the Mullet, up to the Boulevard. Broadway Boulevard. Dealing with cramp. I remember after that game, I very rarely got cramp, cramping both hamstrings, and I was throwing so many shapes on the dance floor. I just <laughs> down. So, yeah, Brandon Brock was playing that night. Blocko. Blocko from the day. Um, so, yeah, an absolutely special evening because it don't happen away from home. When you're uh, away from home and you travel, you get back so late, everyone's knackered and they just go home. But where we're beating City, and there were supporters there, we took over the gap, to be fair. It was a great... There was a guy, there's a guy I've got in Facebook, a Brentford supporter, who was the barman in the VIP lounge at, um, at the Boulevard. And I can't remember his name. And me and Jonesy used to go in, go in there and sit at a bar, and it was a never-ending pour of vodka and whatever we wanted. It was fantastic, yeah. Talk, actually, you've got to say, the, the word Brandon Block aren't heard very often, but... That he was a proper DJ, wasn't he? I love him. Yeah, well, that night, no, sorry, sorry, guys, that night 
he's taping his set. So, it, I mean, I love my, my thing is all the old house music and stuff like that. And when it first, we was privy to all that, me and Jonesy, because we used to go to all the raves and when, when that house music first come out, it was kind of like this revolutionary, kind of a bit like ska music back in the day when that come out. But like this music and Brandon Block's there and we've all kind of piled in and we're up around him. And I remember him flicking one of his um, uh, cassette things open and go, here, boys, here's the recording of the night. And I've still got it. Still got it with Brandon Block, and I'll get onto that when we go to Port of Anus. Now I'm, I'm going to play that later on. I'm going to Darren Emerson and some Seb Fontaine, <laughs> and we're going to we're going to have, we're going to have a party, a house party. That's right. And Blocko, the thing is, Brendan, he's still going as well. He's on My Soul Radio. So if you want to get hold of him, hey, you might about want the to end of season besotted social. Get Blocky down there. That's right. That's right. But listen, this is Man City. We've done with them. We need to move on because the next round. We've got another team that we need to dispatch. We're going to talk about that after this little break. So Blackburn Rovers, fifth round of the FA Cup. Venue, Ewood Park. The date, Saturday, the 18th of February, 1989. The crowd, 15,280. Blackburn Rovers, just to give you a little bit of background, they're in League Division 2, the second tier. They were actually fourth when we met them. You know, so they're actually quite decent. Above them were Watford, Manchester City and Chelsea in the top of the league. At that league, that, that season, they actually finished fifth and they ended up losing in the playoff final to Crystal Palace. They were 3-1 up in the first leg of the playoff final to Palace, but they actually lost the second leg 3-0 with Mark Bright and Ian Wright scoring goals. So Blackburn Rovers, I mean, again, that... When the ball came out of the hat for that one, for us, I mean, we didn't really care what it was all about. We were just so excited, and especially it's a away game because we, listen, home game was fantastic at Griffin Park, but we do love our away days. And also we played Blackbird a little bit earlier that season. We'd actually beaten them as well that season. So the, the, the fact that we got them again, we were going up to Blackburn, I thought was just so exciting. Laney. Well, I, th- I think we're finding out that the team, that Brentford team were were good enough to be competing at the top end of the second tier. But we found that getting out of that division's harder than it is staying in the division above. Um, so, you know, we, 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 on our day, we were competing with the best teams in the, in the second tier. As you say, you know, we've, we've done Man United, uh, done Man City. Um, we've got Blackburn Rovers, as we know we, we're, gonna, we're about to be. Um, so, it's 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 one of those things, you know, getting out of the third tier is, as I said, just harder than it is staying in the second tier. So, you know, it's just a shame that we weren't consistently playing at a higher level back then. Alan, what was the feeling? Blackburn Rovers, what were the thoughts? Do you think we're going to do them? Or do you think, oh, actually, tell you something, we're a bit disappointed about that. Probably would have preferred someone at home, someone maybe a little bit more glamorous or someone that we that we thought that we we might actually be able to beat. Yeah, you want, you, you do want a home draw. Of course you do, because you want to uh, evoke those feelings of the 12,000 against Man City. Of course you want a home draw. Of course it's going to be of an advantage to us. But as we've experienced in the games that we've had in this run, one thing you've got to admit is that nothing's been easy. And going to Ewood freaking Park up north again, is not the easiest game in the world. Um, old stadium, big pitch, top team, and we've got to go there and grind out a result. 
can I just bring up what Lainey just said there is very, very important, is that for, for all the supporters out there, when, when you're playing at a lower level, it's 10 times harder because, A, the people that you're playing against have no respect for you and they will just work and work and work. But when you go to a higher level, whether you're playing against it or playing in it, you have a little bit more time on the football. And also, you have a little more time to, 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 to what should we say, to evoke a game plan. So you can carry out a game plan. If a game's 100 miles an hour, it's very reactionary. But when the game is slowed down with quality opposition, you get to carry out a game plan. And also, you have more time on the football. So that's why I think we're, we, we were successful against the, the higher opposition. Massive excitement for this game. It was a big game. It's a big away day. We had a previous big away day, actually, when we went to Forest a few seasons ago where we actually did a special train. I mean, I went on that football special then up to Forest sort of on a Tuesday or Wednesday night or something like that as well. I think Matthew Benham actually bunked off school to go to that game as well. Don't know if he went on the train or if he went sort of independently, but that shows how important these games are. So this was probably the biggest game since we actually went to Nottingham Forest. Bill. I was not. I was. I wasn't allowed to go on that. I, I was in the middle of my GCSEs or O levels. O levels they would have been at the time, and I was absolutely wounded that my dad and my mum had said like, "You can't go." Not in a forest away. European champions only a few years before. You know, Brian Clough, manager. You know, you've got these like world class names, and and you, no, you can't go. What do you mean I can't go? No, you can't go. Uh, that's an absolute gutter. But listen, let's listen to the fans and let's hear their experiences and the build-up to Blackburn. Yeah, so the Blackburn game, obviously FA Cup fifth round, it was uncharted territory for Brent, uh, most Brentford fans of that era. You know, it was going to be a great day out. Um, Blackburn was second division. Uh, I don't know where they were doing in the league, but the attendance was like 15,000 at the end of the day, which wasn't a lot more than what we had in the previous round for Man City. But I can remember at the start of the day, me and my mates, uh, we booked on one of the two special trains that were going up there. As always, they take forever and a day to get there and back. But, you know, we all had a good good time on the way up there, nice and calm, you know, hoping for a shock result. First thought when the draw came out really was, where on earth is Blackburn? Uh, I had to get the map out and uh, find out where it was. Realised it was maybe a little bit too far to drive like we had done to Peterborough and to Walsall. Uh, but again, planned it all with uh, my mate Keith and we decided to go up on the train, um, booked our tickets. I remember having to take a day off work because I worked weekends at the time uh, and I had to take the Saturday off to, to make sure that I could get there. Uh, lucky enough to get our tickets, travelled up on the train. Uh, wasn't a, a football special, but obviously there was plenty of Brentford fans you know, on the trains going up to, to Blackburn on that day. Uh, fantastic atmosphere and I think a feeling that Brentford were on a real role at the time and could get something out of the game. I mean, you, you talk about build-ups. In those days, you didn't have mobile phones. Um, you know, you could talk to people about the build-ups and that. It was just, you'd get on the phone to make the arrangements. And I think Beckles rang me on the Friday and said, I've got enough money to hire a car, would, you, would I drive? And I said yes. So it was quickly arranged. There was myself, Mandy... We're sure Beckles, Wayne, Adam, Alan Owen, three out of those four, I drove to Blackburn. Fairly easy journey in those days because motorways aren't as busy as what they were. 
and there was excitement. They were all obviously drunk in the car and I was driving. Blackburn Rovers turned out to be probably the best football game, not football for football, just throw out game that I've ever been to in my life for 50 odd years in going to watch Brentford. I don't know why, FA Cup's always special, but we left the bricklayers' arms in a coach at 7 o'clock in the morning, 1988-89 season. If you travelled in a coach with all young lads, you wasn't expected to have a nice welcome when you got to the other end. So how this day turned out was absolutely brilliant. We got to Blackburn at around about 11 o'clock um, and we pulled up outside the ground because there was a pub and um, we just went straight into the pub before then. Hearing the governor could stop us, we just told off the coach straight in, and he's going, This is a home supporters only club, home supporters only. As it happens, we talked to him for serving us, suppose at 11 o'clock, no one else in his pub. So he served us, and in the next three hours was absolutely special. As the Blackburn Rovers fans come in, in their groups or in their teams or whatever, they all started talking. And it was like, it was magic. It was really well, something that we probably hadn't experienced in the, in the 80s and the, and the 70s. And, um, Oh, what friendships have been unbelievable. Um, we spent about the afternoon in the pump, we got up to three o'clock. We all sung, they sung, we sung. We had, they had a pool table, and then we had a pool table out in the, in the, in the, in the back. And um, it was constantly, you had to queue up to get on the pool table your money to come to the pump. I remember at one stage in the day, we had a player that was um, that had been on the pool table about six or seven games. So it can't, because it, everyone's having a good time. We asked them if they had a if they had a good pool player, and they, they nominated this fellow they had. And then we had a we had a player between the Brentford and the Blackburn, and it was twenty five pound on the table, and every ball was greeted with a roar and a chant. Oh, it was just a magic, magic day in the pub. We, and we come out of the pub, we went to the ground, and um, as we were passing the ground, we were shaking hands, coming in. Even after they even said to us, "Oh, we win." You know, that was how good it was in the pub. Their fans were absolutely brilliant. I don't really remember much of the, uh, the, the the build up to Blackburn apart from by then Billy the Bee's official unofficial coaches were were in full swing by then and uh, and that's how we travelled uh, so there's all, all the characters on the coach which is like I think pretty much the first time for me with that lot so that was good you know apparently the, uh, some sort of pub stone away I can't remember but. Uh, I'm 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 sure there was. Brian Brian the chemist was uh, doing his motivational speech on the coach as we approached Blackburn. Yeah, I believe that was uh, that's quite inspirational. Yeah, that, I think that swung it for us really. Um, sure that got through to the players. So specials are like crappy old trains. They used to charter for uh, for just for football matches on Saturday. So they were just full of uh, football supporters, and they were the worst possible trains. And they used to just go from A to B. And uh, full of full of uh, lunatics, really. But uh, Brentford, I never, I don't think Brentford ever done one before because they wouldn't have the, uh, the volume of fans to do it. But for some reason, they they chartered this train, and they also uh, they all for some reason had a stop at Watford. And I lived in North London, so that was perfect. So we uh, we drove to drove to Watford car park, got on the train, and the day really kicked off. Uh, kicked off from there. It was just just uh, just riotous, you know. Every single station going to uh, singing at the people on the platforms. I think I said in my email when we uh, got the crew, there were all these transports and God, the grief they got was just, uh, just, just hysterical. It was just a, just a great, great journey up, full of, uh, full of the anticipation. Me and my two mates, Richard and Pete, were all going to go by train. We knew each other before uh, ticket details were, were sort of announced, so we all decided we wanted to go. If there was a train, we'd go by train. I think in the end, of the, there was two trains left by the 
from Ealing Broadway, um, which were both packed. But uh, yeah, the build up to it, ringing up the cup call number, racking up the build up where I worked. I think I got told off at the time for bringing them and maybe presenting with a bill for paying for it. But yeah, that all that I remember that at the time and the fun fight for the tickets. Um, and in the end, I think we took about three thousand supporters up to Blackburn, which is an incredible turnout, especially up in Lancashire. Parked up the car, abandoned it near the Green um, Ealing Common, and. Got on the train, brilliant train journey. Mentioned sneak on the bottle of lemonade with a little bit extra in it than it should have been, so that was made the journey a bit more bearable um, for all three of us. And we got to Blackburn and uh, remembered the long walk from the Blackburn station down to the grounds. Seemed to be like we got there quite late because we marched straight into the ground by police escort. Some some banter with the locals, but nothing too serious at the time, and it all seemed quite well. And it was from the boys a great day out. We had a trucker's breakfast on the A5 and uh, on the way up in Toaster, which was our compulsory deviation off the M1. It was a long drive up, and the old town when we arrived was glistening in the winter sunshine in the Lancashire Hills. We always remember 1,000 holes in Blackburn, Lancashire. Ewood Park pre-Premier League days was really old school. It was a big pitch and we had 3,000 Bees fans all, all in at the Darwin end. And we dived into a pre-match pub. Tony, my mate, ordered pints of Thwaites. Um, he said, three pints of Thwaites, please. He says, sorry, love, do you mean Thwaites? Different accent, different land, call to arms, chaps. Great memories there from the fans. Now, <laughs> this was... This was the start of the coaches that I did, the official, unofficial. And uh, I remember my mate Paul Cassell, like I said to you, uh, Paul is, 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 is his mum's other half, husband now, but at the time it's her other half, he was working for a little coach company down in South East London. It was like a, just a regular coach, not a coach company, but a bus company. It was like the local sort of kind of, you know, you know, 237 bus company. And I remember like, you know, I wanted to do a coach to go to Blackburn, massive day out. So I said, I'll do it. So Paul says, oh, he works for a coach company. So he gave us his number and then I called them up and they sorted us out with this coach, which was a pretty crappy kind of, you know, 49-seater coach, but we didn't care. We had it all to ourselves. So that was the first ever official, unofficial. Wasn't overly packed. There's probably about 20, 25, 30 of us on there, but we didn't care. We went up there on the coach. We got our booze. We stopped up. Um, we were on the motorway, we had our inflatables, and like I said, I remember the photographs of the inflatable pink pampers and everything like that we had on it. You know, I had a little stop off. We did a stop off on the way to Blackburn. I think it was actually in Darwin, which is, have you ever seen the program? Um, that was on Netflix recently about, I can't remember the English game, I think it was, and that's all around the team Darwin. I'm pretty sure we stopped off on Darwin on the way, and a boozer there because we were a little bit nervous about stopping off actually. In the towns, so all the trips I always used to do used to stop off in towns outside that were really obscure, but probably 10 or 15 miles away. And also out of the view of the police who are always trying to track football fans where they're going. And then we found a boozer in there that I used to find a good pub guide. And we had a right old laugh. It was a brilliant day out. Um, Alan, for, for you, I mean, what are your memories of building up and, and the day of that match? Well, for me, it was a bit of a Dominic because um, I got I got injured. Um, not so I wasn't a hundred percent fit. So I think I was. A, I, Steve said, "Can you make the bench?" And I said, "Yeah, I'll make the bench." And in 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 actual hindsight, it worked for us because we 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 put out a more of a workman like team. Um, and the team that played that evening, 
I was on the bench. So I uh, and it's a, it's great. Sometimes it's good to be on the bench like that because you see the game in a different perspective. Um, and the uh, the team that night put in a shift. I remember again. I keep saying this word: put in a shift. It was a big pitch. We condensed their space. We didn't let, let them play. And also, we took what's really important, guys, to remember is it's all about goals at the end of the day. And there weren't many chances created, but we put away our chances, which is the most important thing. And also, you've got to take your hat off to the back four. Um, if you look at the games, you know, goals conceded, nil. You, you're not going, you shouldn't be going to, uh, to Ewood Park and, con and not, you know, you're, you're likely to concede a goal. So not to concede a goal and come away there is 2-0 is, is a fantastic result. And fair play to all the lads, you know. And, I mean, it was a great result. I mean, Laney, what are your thoughts on kind of building up and of the match? Well, again, you know, it, it, it was a big cup weekend. Um, we would, it was a very, very early start from Ealing Broadway, I believe, the train went from. Um, I was on the, the special trains that went up. And it was the special trains weren't special. Yeah, it, it, it was special in so much as that it had, uh, it had been sort of decommissioned from right, public use probably 15 years before. And, uh, but there was, there was cubicle. It was, it was like there was, it was carriages full of little compartments. Um, they don't make trains like that anymore, thank God. And it, it was it, the carriage that I went up in had been used as a toilet, I'm sure, for 15 years as well. But that we, I can't I actually can't remember who I went with. But I remember it leaving very early. Getting to Eden Broadway was a was a problem for me because I was uh, in Ashford. And then we once once on board, it was one of those ones where you just literally stopped at every every junction or every signal to let another train through. So we we had to sort of work our way out of London all the way up the spine of the country. Um, to get to, you know, through Manchester. Well, I remember, I remember coming through Cruise Station and giving some poor train spotters some merciless grief. Um, and and then we finally, we finally, we should have had an hour or so, or two hours before the game. We should have got up there in plenty of time, but it was a bit of a rush. And I remember the police on the on the walk from Blackburn Station to Ewood Park were really not happy. They were not friendly. I didn't want Cockneys there. They didn't want, you know, Cockneys, we're not Cockneys, but they didn't, you know, they didn't want Londoners or Southerners there. And it was, there was no chance that you could have snuck into a pub. Um, so it was a bit, to be honest with you, it wasn't relaxing. It was, it was, it wasn't, it wasn't a good experience. Getting to the ground was all important. And once we were in there, that was fine. It was a bigger way end. Um, it all stood up. And uh, there was a you know a decent atmosphere, and obviously a lot of Brentford fans there. So you know, again, those kind of uh, away days, a long way from home, with three thousand Brentford fans there, is going to be an amazing atmosphere. So I, I do remember that that it was getting into the ground. It was like big sigh of relief. We can relax now. We're here. And now enjoy the game. At least you got there because just harking back quickly to the Nottingham Forest game, 
on the special that we got there, we left probably about 10 or 11 o'clock or maybe midday at the very latest from Ealing Broadway for a 7.45 kickoff. And we got to Nottingham Forest for half time oh, that special, which did stop at every single junction. And I remember going over the bridge just as you come to Nottingham Forest, you can see the ground as you come over the bridge. And as we came over the bridge, we saw them score the first goal as we were being marched in by the police to the stadium. So, uh, yeah, it wasn't wasn't great. It might have even been the second goal, to be honest with you. I can't even remember. But um, coming back to that, I mean, because of the atmosphere, like I said to you, inside the stadium was really great. The fans were really, really behind it. Alan's talked about how, you know, they've got this industrious side, which actually thrust your side out. Listen, let's have a little listen to a few more of the fans and their memories. Blackburn. Prior to the journey, uh, I was working in a, in a printer's uh, where I'd done my apprenticeship. Um, I was 21 at the time. And when uh, the match tickets came out, uh, they were like a light orange colour with a very dark blue ink. And I was thinking uh, we could uh, actually copy these tickets. So I... Uh, being at work, uh, I found some coloured paper which was very, very similar, and but I didn't have a coloured copier, so I ended up running through some orange sheets of paper uh, with some with black ink, and it was a pretty much a good fit. Uh, I ended up uh, dishing a, f a few tickets out, and a few mates managed to get in on them. Obviously, when you're at the turnstiles, a little bit darker, so the colour difference really didn't matter that much. It was only when we got through that one of my mates sort of said to me, you know, look at these, the colours are different. I said, well, what do you expect, you know? But, you know, I was 21, but I got away with it. You know, now I'm done. You know, extra fans got to see the game. As the game went on, all the Brentford fans would be on the goal terracing again a good atmosphere uh, the main bits I can really remember about the game it was especially the third goal when Blissett burst through on that sort of loose ball and just smashed it high, high into the goal sort of thing you know that was just when everyone went crazy really and that was really that was it we knew we had won once he'd scored that and that's just when you know it was just great scenes on the terraces there. At the end of the game, I can remember being up on the fence down the front and oh, I think my picture was ended up on one of the back pages of the paper and I think uh, with Terry Evans, um, clenched fist sort of salute to the Bees fans sort of thing and there's my silhouette in the background. I can also remember chucking my scarf on the, on the pitch and Andy Sinton picked that up. So yeah, it was, it was a great day. The journey back obviously seems a lot quicker, but again, it took forever. On the way up there, I was on one special train and my dad was on the other, but he ended up being on the same special train on the way back. We were going a little bit mental, me and my mates in, my, in our little carriage, bouncing all over the seats in like the uh, pretty dirty sort of individual little carriages that they always laid on for specials. And now I was bouncing around, jumping from one seat to the other. And there's my dad walking down like the corridor. He goes, all right, son. Yeah, all right, dad, sort of. <laughs> Felt a little bit silly, but that's what you do when you're 21, isn't it? Can't remember much about we got into the ground and whatever, but like... Mandy and I decided to go to the loo and Mandy dropped her mum's eternity ring down the loo. Luckily she hadn't been and I was just putting my hand down the toilet to retrieve it and Blissett scored the first goal and I was just, I didn't know what to do and we just knew that it was a Brentford goal because of the noise, it was just deafening and I just like grabbed 
grabbed the ring and we ran out and of course by then kickoff had started and whatever it was just so happy it was a really good atmosphere there and then when Blissett scored that second goal wow yeah we just all went mad didn't we didn't they have fences up we were climbing on the fences and just going absolutely mental and then I think I came home. I don't know. We didn't go anywhere afterwards up there to meet anybody because all I can remember is whenever I used to hire the car, it was a day car. They'd let me pick it up really early in the morning, but it had to be back by 11.59 on that Saturday night. So I would have drove straight back to Witten and dropped the car there. We absolutely stuffed them. All right, 2-0, two goals in the last 10 minutes. But it was a great performance. And Simon Garner... Was it Noel Brotherton? All these sort of players. Never saw them on the day. Uh, Tony Parks did well. Simon Ratcliffe, who I hated. I fell in love with him because he was brilliant that day. He was a powerhouse in midfield, ploughing forward. We were really good. Um, I, I vividly remember the, the two Blissett goals. Loads of bees up there. Packed out their big away terrace behind a goal. On the way back, I believe we stopped at a... Offy around Wigan area and uh, pretty much emptied their shelves. So it is, this is like, you know, the, the birth of the pottiness for us lot, you know, that was a good one. The game went brilliant, 3,000 Brumper fans there, everyone's enjoying it and obviously you enjoy it more when, um, when you come out with a result like we did when Blissett scored the two goals. But the funny thing was, when we come out, the pub was on the right hand side. After we celebrated, the pub was right at the the, um, the, as you come out of the turnstile. So we started four of us. It was um, me, Mark Sangster, Paul Donovan, and a, and a fellow called Skinny John. We went towards the pub, not knowing that the coach park was to the left, not to the right. So the time we got to the pub, I remember walking down that road, and I remember a whole bus stop full of Blackburn Rovers fans, all old, all different ages, and they were clapping us. I mean, what hospitality is that? You, you just, we've never seen hospitality like this before. They were just all standing there clapping us. Because we just beat them 2-0 and knocked them out of the cup. You know, we never used to get that when we went up north. The funny thing was, got to, got to the pub, I started to ask where the coach was and everything else, and um, they went, no, oh, we in the coach park. So the time we got back to the coach park, they moved all the coaches on. So we were stuck in Blackburn. So we didn't know what to do, there was four of us. So then we, we started speaking to a couple of people, and someone said the train didn't leave till 6 o'clock, a special that um, was um, Peter Gillam organised to take up there. So, um, so as we decided to try to find out where, the, where it was going from, so we went in a couple of off-licenses, filled up with drink and everything else like you do, not realising it was a dry train. And um, so as we get to the station, and train hadn't left, it was brilliant. So we had to find a way of getting on that train because we didn't have tickets and getting on with a drink. So rather than queue up on the, the left-hand side where the queue went all the way around the ground and uh, around the station, and Peter Gillam and um, I think Jacobs it was with there and... Um, checking everyone if they had any drink and checking if they had a ticket to um, go in. We, we see this, but so we decided to approach the, approach the queue from the other side, from Peter Gillam and um, Jacob's back, so we was behind them. So we, we, we walked up to Peter Gillam from behind. I said, Peter, I said, we've missed our coach. Um, is there any chance we can get on the train? And in true Peter Gillam style, he didn't say a word. He just moved two foot to his right, left enough gap for us four to get in down the steps to the station without a ticket and without him knowing, without a drink. 
Yeah, and we was the only people on the train. And we had our own little cage for the drinks, so we was able to celebrate all the way home from Blackburn. Yeah, what a day that was. What a day that was. Escorted to the ground with a huge, you know, huge, huge trail of people to the ground. And then we got in, got into that. And Blackburn's a really nice stadium, it sounds. So, but if you, one of the stands, you've got a beautiful view of the hills. I don't know, I don't know if you did in 89, but probably you did. So Blackburn was always a ground I always liked going to. And then, uh, and then we had the match. I think the first half was pretty tight, and we thought we've got a, we've got a chance here. And then uh, we got the first goal. And I thought we've really got a chance here, but you know, you just got can't can't take any McGrath. But once the second goal popped in, that was it. I knew we were going to win, and it was yeah, that was absolutely amazing. It's the most exhilarating feeling I've ever had. And I've been a lot of the uh, big Brentford games over the last fifty years, but for some reason that was. Uh, that was the best. I mean, I was at Peterborough when I got promoted and various other places, but I don't know why, but that was just the best game of all time for me. Seemed to be sort of level pegging all the way through the game in the first half and done really well. Come to the second half and the Brentford were attacking our, our end, so given the extra momentum and the noise we created, I think, I think it seemed like a wall of sound, but probably not as loud as that, but it was really, really good atmosphere at the time and, of course, dream of dreams, we, we, go, and, we go and score and... Uh, can't believe the, the atmosphere, the mayhem behind that goal. Um, just everybody boy going flying everywhere and hugging everybody, jumping up and down. Um, and then a few minutes later, it seemed like a few minutes later, Gary Blissett goes and scores the second one and squeezes squeezes the ball past the goalkeeper and around and into the goal. And that was it. We was through. Brilliant day. Always remember Steve Perriman coming onto the pitch at the end after being interviewed, I think, by local TV or whatever and giving us a wave and we're all still in the grounds and making the noise. Yeah, took Fred's get back to the station and uh, we had two specials those days and unfortunately got one of them for specials that broke down. Had one hell of a long day, got back to Eden, God knows what time and it just didn't really care at the time. We, we were still in cloud night. And we just looked around. I remember looking around on the terrace with all the fans are going absolutely mental and we suddenly realised in total disbelief, here was Brentford, mid-table Brentford through the, through the 1980s that we'd reached the FA Cup quarterfinals for the first time in modern post-war history. And it was just an amazing feeling. Both of Brentford's goals came in the, the final 10 minutes, as I seem to remember. Um, and I think with 10 or 15 minutes to go, I think we were happy to take a, a goalless draw and go back to Griffin Park for a replay and have a chance to win the game there. But then for Blissett to get those two goals and the, the scenes, when you see, when you see the, the replay of the goals now, to see the fans behind the goal, celebrating and knowing that Brentford would end into the quarterfinals was just unbelievable. And as you can imagine, the atmosphere on the train and the singing and everything on the train back uh, towards Brentford that night was just something absolutely incredible. And again, like I've said with all the other rounds, you then sort of, you know, held your breath and anticipated who you could possibly get because then you're down to the last eight teams going into the next round and you just knew that you were going to get uh, somebody big, just how big, wasn't going to be revealed until the Monday. But uh, my goodness, when that draw came out, what a draw that was. When we left the ground, I think the police were a bit, uh, a bit narky. It was on the mounted, mounted horses. I, think they were, I don't know if they just didn't like Brentford supporters or were pissed off because we beat them. So they were giving it, but no one cared. We were just singing all the way back to the station. And then, uh, as I say, the, the train journey back was just like, like one big party. I don't know how long it took, probably three hours or something. But it was just a, just a joy from, the, from beginning to end. Best three hours on a train I've ever had. I was quite easily say. Great, great memories that. I mean, and Alan, after the match, I mean, listen, it was just pandemonium as far as we we're concerned. I mean, we had the, 
We had the fans, like I said to you, we, I mean, I remember standing on the terraces, absolutely hugging each other. I've got some great photographs. We're going to post all these photographs as much as we can do up on Facebook, on Besotted.com. We'll put them out on Twitter just to give you the vibe. Some great, great photographs. People dressed up in all sorts of things as well. And I remember at the very end when the fans were so happy and they all climbed up on the fence and people were climbing up on the fence and they were, because they had those fences to stop people from going onto the pitch. And they managed to climb up on the fence and they just sat on the fence and just watched as the players came over and they kind of cheered them and everything like that. And there was almost like a sort of real reflection from the fans trying to take it all in. I don't know if you remember any of that, Alan. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I mean, I remember, as I said earlier, well, as I didn't say earlier, as I'm saying now, that we used to travel up <clears throat> the evening before, whether it be a league game or a cup game. Um, Steve was big on that. He probably had, he, knowing, knowing him, he probably owned every hotel up north anyway. So he got, he, he, we had all the discount. But travelling up for the lads, we used to love away games because um, you got up to all sorts of shenanigans. And I don't know if it's still there. We used to get our bacon rolls from the uh, CAF. On, you have, you've got Brentford Station where the bridge is. And there's a little row of shops. There's a, a, a cab office there. And there was, a, I think, a, a Greek guy that served the best bacon rolls. And we, the coach would pull up there. We'd jump out, get all our pre-order our bacon rolls and jump back in the... In the uh, in the coach and travel up um and then just a, a quick story of the journey of the journey when we got there so we were staying in a nice nice hotel but unfortunately for poor jason cousins do you remember jason cousins yeah oh god yeah naked <laughs> naked in the hotel for about two hours of course he was of course he was so we we used to play as i, I, I said in the previous pod that we played uh, card games and we introduced people like Buckle, Marcus Gale, Rob Peters, and uh, Jason Cousins to the um, to the Aces to the Kings game, and little did they know it was it was fixed odds right from the beginning. And C Cousins was a bit of a chew, um, and we rigged it so he's loose. And the bet was that he had to get naked and go go and ask people who their favourite footballer was. So he's going around the hotel asking everyone naked who their favourite footballer is. And in the meantime, we've nicked his key and hid his key. So now he's running about the hotel naked as, as the day he was born. Great introduction to the first team, actually. Yeah, 16 or 17 he probably would have been at the time. I think, I think he's still in therapy, Laney. I've got to tell you this. I've got to tell you the story coming home. So the story coming home from, uh, uh, from Blackburn was we, we was told by, by Steve that we were not allowed to do any press interviews or paper interviews unless, unless we got the go-ahead from him, which was fair enough, I suppose, at the time. But I kind, I kind of didn't really stick to that one. And I, Mil, Keith Millen, a lovely man, a lovely man, and, and really could be a modern-day footballer, you know, in, in his thoughts about the game and the way, and the way he conducted himself. And I decided to put on, I was quite good at impressions and I was quite, and I, I rung him up at home and decided to do a mock interview from the local newspaper um, about uh, a, a one million pound um, bid from Manchester United to him and recorded the interview. And he fell for it, hook, line and sinker. So I've done this interview and I've taped it and coming home, I've put it on the coach. It's about a 20 minute interview. And he's saying that, yeah, I've really worked on my left foot. And me and Tell are known as the Twin Towers. And he's bigging himself up wholesale. And that was the tape. And we were crying. And also, we used to have a bit of karaoke. 
I used to do the old pub singer down the front. There was a few acts going on. So yeah, the 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 away games on the coach for the chaps were, were great experiences. What was your big number, Alan? It was a. Uh, it's called the Should Buddy Ho song. It absolutely has no words to it at all. But I'm going to give you a little rendition. So I do it to my wife. I do it to um, when I'm out. Uh, shall we say in the pubs? And I, it goes a bit like this: is Should Buddy Ho, hello, I love you. So you just throw the I love you in it. It's a Billy Connolly sketch. Check it out. It's a Billy Connolly sketch. A bit like Vic, Vic Reeves does that too, doesn't he? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Oh, yeah, they were great times. And also, can I just say a real bonding for the team as well? Because we had a great bunch of lads. And that's the thing. The team bonding is the big thing because and it needed to be the big thing because we're going big time now. The quarterfinal of the FA Cup. Join us for part three of Besotted Reloaded. Brentford's 1988-89 FA Cup run. We'll look back on Brentford's trip to Liverpool and we'll hear stories from players Alan Cockrum, Neil Smiley, Gary Blissett, Tony Parks and also manager Steve Perriman and hear what they had to say. Plus we'll be also hearing stories from the fans who travelled in their droves to Liverpool in what was Brentford's biggest match in 40 years. You can catch parts one and three of this podcast on prideofwest.london. You can also catch up with all besotted activity besotted.com please subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast provider and thanks very much for listening Away days are great, but there's nothing quite like playing at home. The same goes for McDonald's. Maximize your home ground advantage with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app. At participating restaurants, 18 plus serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Support comes from ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is... AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees, supercharging productivity for your developers, providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier, all built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people to learn more. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans.